Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a NASA spacecraft has just touched the sun for the first time in human history. Plus, are floating neighborhoods the future for coastal towns? And a look back at the origin of online reviews and a question about their future. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. For the first time ever in history, a spacecraft has touched the sun. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has flown into the sun's upper atmosphere, the corona, sampled some particles, and came back out of it intact. As NASA wrote in a press release yesterday, quote, The new milestone marks one major step for Parker Solar Probe and one giant leap for solar science. End quote. This is something we've been working on since the late 50s, but didn't have the technology to create a craft that could withstand the journey until the 2000s. Sixty years after the idea was first conceived, the Parker Solar Probe launched, and we got that much closer to figuring out many of the sun's mysteries, including learning more about solar wind, which can have anywhere from inconvenient to disastrous effects on our satellites and other technology. Now, technically, according to the Associated Press, Parker went through the corona back in April, but it took a few months for the data to reach Earth and then for scientists to confirm it before making an announcement. And when we say touched the sun, it's important to note that the sun doesn't have a solid surface. As NASA explains, quote, But it does have a superheated atmosphere, made of solar material bound to the sun by gravity and magnetic forces. As rising heat and pressure push that material away from the sun, it reaches a point where gravity and magnetic fields are too weak to contain it. That point, known as the Alphavane critical surface, marks the end of the solar atmosphere and beginning of the solar wind. Solar material with the energy to make it across that boundary becomes the solar wind, which drags the magnetic field of the sun with it as it races across the solar system to Earth and beyond. Importantly, beyond the Alphavane critical surface, the solar wind moves so fast that waves within the wind cannot ever travel fast enough to make it back to the sun, severing their connection. Until now, researchers were unsure exactly where the Alphavane critical surface lay. Based on remote images of the corona, estimates had put it somewhere between 10 to 20 solar radii from the surface of the sun, 4.3 to 8.6 million miles. Parker's spiral trajectory brings it slowly closer to the sun, and during the last few passes, the spacecraft was consistently below 20 solar radii, 91% of the Earth's distance from the sun, putting it in the position to cross the boundary if the estimates were correct. And on April 28, 2021, during its eighth flyby of the sun, Parker Solar Probe encountered the specific magnetic and particle conditions at 18.8 solar radii, around 8.1 million miles, above the solar surface that told scientists it had crossed the Alphavane critical surface for the first time and finally entered the solar atmosphere. End quote. The probe has already confirmed some long-held predictions, like that the Alphavane critical surface is not a perfectly smooth ball, but rather that it has spikes and valleys along its surface. 
The sun houses some of the biggest questions in our solar system, and this is the closest we've ever gotten to answering some of those. Thomas Zerbukin, Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate at NASA, said, quote, Parker Solar Probe touching the sun is a monumental moment for solar science and a truly remarkable feat. Not only does this milestone provide us with deeper insights into our sun's evolution and its impacts on our solar system, but everything we learn about our own star also teaches us more about stars in the rest of the universe. End quote. The Parker Solar Probe was launched in 2018 and plans to continue passing closer and closer to the sun, intending to go as close as 8.86 solar radii, or around 3.83 miles, until its final orbit in 2025. When a big storm rolls in, personally, the last place I would want to be is on the water. But a Dutch community called Schoenship in Amsterdam says that's the safest place to be, and that's why their houses are built on the water. Floating houses held up on steel foundational pillars. With sea levels rising and extreme storms becoming more frequent, could floating houses be the future for coastal towns? And while this concept is being tried out in a handful of European countries, as well as places facing expeditious threats from the climate emergency like French Polynesia and the Maldives, the Netherlands is a uniquely perfect place to test these floating homes on a large scale. With most of the country below sea level, houseboats are already common in many of its towns, including Amsterdam, which has 3,000 registered across its 160 canals. So there is plenty of water and existing infrastructure on which to test and a public who is more accustomed to the idea than perhaps in other cities. But a floating house is not just a houseboat. Quoting Yale E360, A floating house can be constructed on any shoreline and is able to cope with rising seas or rain-induced floods by floating atop the water's surface. Unlike houseboats, which can easily be unmoored and relocated, floating homes are fixed to the shore, often resting on steel poles, and are usually connected to the local sewer system and power grid. They are structurally similar to houses built on land, but instead of a basement, they have a concrete hull that acts as a counterweight, allowing them to remain stable in the water. In the Netherlands, they are often prefabricated, square-shaped, three-story townhouses built off-site with conventional materials like timber, steel, and glass. For cities facing worsening floods and a shortage of buildable land, floating homes are one potential blueprint for how to expand urban housing in the age of climate change. Kun Oldhouse, who in 2003 founded Water Studio, a Dutch architectural firm focused exclusively on floating buildings, said that the relatively low-tech nature of floating homes is potentially their biggest advantage. The homes he designs are stabilized by poles dug roughly 65 meters into the ground and outfitted with shock-absorbent materials to reduce the feeling of movement from nearby waves. The houses ascend when waters rise and descend when waters recede. But despite their apparent simplicity, Oldhouse contends that they have the potential to transform cities in ways not seen since the introduction of the elevator, which pushed skylines upward, end quote. In Shonship, the community feel and green living goes beyond just having a floating house. The neighborhood shares resources, bikes, cars, food from local farms. Every building has its own heat pump, and each one's roof has space devoted to greenery and solar panels. E360 notes that excess power from the solar panels is shared among the community and then sent to the national grid. Beyond Schoenship, just south in Rotterdam, there's not only the world's largest floating office building, but a floating dairy farm. 
And if you think this idea of building homes and offices and farms directly on the water instead of abandoning coastal towns altogether is already some transformational thinking, there's also the Dutch Room for River program started in 2006, which, quoting again, strategically allows certain areas to flood during periods of heavy rain, a paradigm shift that seeks to embrace rather than resist rising water levels. End quote. So, kinda like controlled burns, but for water. It's fascinating. There are several companies working on floating buildings and neighborhoods around the world, especially in those aforementioned nations. There are even preliminary plans for an underwater rail tunnel to link up Helsinki, Finland, and Tallinn, Estonia. Notably, that 15 billion euro project is backed in part by Peter Vesterbaka, who helped found Angry Birds. And in the Maldives, construction is about to start on some affordable floating housing for 20,000 people. And what's extra cool about that is that the buildings there will pump cold seawater from deep down in the ocean to power the unit's air conditioning systems. But with all of these cool innovations do come a few downsides. Mostly that a lot has to be built from scratch, and it's a lot of extra work to connect them to existing electric grids and sewer systems. Of course, all of that will become less and less of a hurdle as time goes on. It's kind of more of a startup challenge. The other challenge is getting people comfortable with the idea, especially during storms. The E360 article describes how during a recent storm in Amsterdam, Schoenship residents could feel their houses moving up and down those steel foundational pillars, a stomach-churning feeling even though they were confident they were safe. One resident said it was really disconcerting when she first moved in, but that she's gotten used to it. For those few downsides, though, there are a ton of benefits. Namely, these coastal towns getting a new lease on life when it looked like they were headed for the worst. You know, I think a lot about the floating towns in the Jetsons, and whether that vision of the future will ever be necessary, but I've never thought about how our communities could be floating on the water instead of in the air. As Old House told Yale E360, quote, We now have the tech, the possibility to build on water. And we don't see ourselves as architects, but as city doctors. And we see the water as a medicine. End quote. Reviews for products and businesses can be incredibly helpful, especially nowadays. I read an article the other day about new COVID-era etiquette for dining out, and one whole section was devoted to looking at a restaurant's reviews and Instagram page ahead of time to find out what kind of protocols they're following, how closely they stick to them, whether they have outdoor dining, and what their setup looks like. You know, do they have outdoor heating? And we're also ordering more and more online these days, and maybe even for products you might go in person somewhere to buy, you might still look at reviews online to find the best option and make sure there aren't any red flags that previous buyers have identified. Of course, you have to be discerning with reviews, you know, think about the kind of person who leaves reviews. It's often someone on the extremes of overly upset about a minor detail or overly happy for an irrelevant personal reason, or more often these days, incentivized to leave a review with a freebie, or maybe they're even just a bot. But despite their problems, including being another thing that businesses have to deal with, consumer reviews are ubiquitous. And honestly, it's kind of hard to remember a time when they weren't. Even though I know that we haven't always had consumer reviews online, I'd never before thought of them as like a hallmark innovation in the development of the internet and the consumer landscape that we have today. 
But Mashable recently looked back at the origins of online consumer reviews and spoke to a handful of experts, including Santa Clara law professor Eric Goldman, who pointed out that there's no analog equivalent to consumer reviews. Before, it was all professional reviews, or word of mouth and recommendations from friends. In fact, Joseph Regal, professor of communication studies at Northeastern University, points out that even Amazon at first hired actual book reviewers for their reviews. Consumer reviews online didn't come into play until after Section 230 was passed in the U.S., Section 230 is the one you've been hearing a lot about the past few years. It's specifically Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and was passed in 1996. Quoting The Verge, It says an interactive computer service can't be treated as the publisher or speaker of third-party content. This protects websites from lawsuits if a user posts something illegal, although there are exceptions for copyright violations, sex work-related material, and violations of federal criminal law. Senator Ron Wyden and Representative Chris Cox crafted Section 230 so website owners could moderate sites without worrying about legal liability. The law is particularly vital for social media networks, but it covers many sites and services, including news outlets with comment sections, like The Verge. The Electronic Frontier Foundation calls it the most important law protecting internet speech. End quote. However, it is often misinterpreted and arguably out of date for how the internet, especially social media, has evolved. But when it came out, it meant that companies could allow online consumer reviews without being held liable for what those reviews said. And they also couldn't say that, like, a bad review was defamatory or something like that. Amazon was the first major retailer to use them, but like with so much else, other companies got on board so they wouldn't be left in the dust. Because for consumers, you know, why would you buy something from one place with no reviews when you could go to another site and see what a hundred people thought of the product? Though, if a particular company you wanted to buy a product from didn't have consumer reviews yet, you could always go to a site like ePinions, a website I completely forgot used to exist until I started writing this segment, and which Goldman, the law professor, used to serve on the general counsel for. Now, consumer reviews were a gamble at first, but once it became clear that they were becoming a huge part of the internet and a new way that consumers interacted with businesses, all the little startup review sites got bought out by the bigger tech companies. And now we're inundated with them, the helpful and the harmful. Quoting Mashable, Alongside the growth of online reviews, fake reviews have proliferated, as well as review bombing, the phenomenon in which users dump heaps of negative reviews on businesses or creative works they're looking to critique. Saud Khalifa, the founder and CEO of FakeSpot, an app designed to spot fake Amazon reviews that was removed from Apple's App Store after Amazon reached out to Apple, says the explosive growth of online reviews has opened up this Pandora's box, incentivizing legitimate businesses to gain and rig reviews. There aren't concrete stats on the absolute total number of fake reviews across all of the major review platforms, K. Dean, a former criminal investigator now devoted to tracking fake reviews, points out, but for context, Google says that it removed or blocked 55 million reviews in 2020, and Trustpilot said that it removed 2.2 million fake reviews in 2020, Dean explains, adding that she found tons of additional fake reviews on those platforms in the same time frame. End quote. So stopping businesses from being ruined or consumers from being hoodwinked is one downside of the growing fraud in online reviews, but they're really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of complaints against Section 230. And though for quite different reasons, both sides of the political aisle in the U.S. want to revoke Section 230. 
many of the experts Mashable interviewed would prefer to see it revised and updated for the times. Now, Goldman thinks we should leave it in place, mostly because of the reviews. He reiterates that there simply isn't an offline equivalent to consumer reviews, and that, for all of their downsides, they've made the business-to-consumer interactions a lot better. He says that businesses work a lot harder to satisfy customers. Now, I tend to see it more as businesses being obligated to have online presences and being constantly paranoid of someone trying to ruin them with one bad review, but I guess Goldman has a point as well especially to help with more niche circumstances, like wanting to see what an outdoor dining setup is in the winter during a pandemic, or, like Goldman did back in the early 1990s, find a decent vegan restaurant in a new town. Reviews from non-professionals are great for things like that, and a lot of us have figured out how to be discerning when we read reviews to not get fooled by fraud. But the fraudsters are only getting more savvy, and as I said, fraudulent reviews are just the tip of the iceberg. I tend to agree more with Regal, who asks of tech companies, quote, whether they should really be able to host any sort of content and not have any sort of responsibility, end quote. What some kind of responsibility looks like without taking away some of the innovative benefits, I don't know, but I think it's an important thing for us to be thinking about. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.